Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast on 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Leader say, two years old and making a difference. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. The Naked Scientist is brought to you by MWeb. MWeb, connect and you can. Hi there, Chris. Good morning. Are you all? Yes, can't complain, as Thomas is fond of saying. <laughs> I don't know if you, maybe that should be the first question. Why is Thomas physiologically incapable of complaining? <laughs> why, is, why is Thomas physiologically feasible? The amount he eats, the amount of sleep he doesn't get. <laughs> is he human? Miracle. I reckon he is, actually. It's interesting, isn't it, how people's turns of phrase can plant themselves in your own psyche. Someone was saying this to me the other day. We were making a program all about chemistry. Mm. And one of the people I was talking to, I always run through the stories with people that they're going to talk about before they do them. And this guy turned around to me afterwards and said, you know, that that's a, a sort of a way of, of intellectual massaging us because he said, <laughs> you plant phrases in our heads. And he said, and I find myself using them. Thomas always says to me on a Friday morning, can't complain. Here I am using a Thomas <laughs> phrase. <laughs> Certainly suggestive. The man, the man implants post-hypnotic suggestions. <laughs> That's huge influence. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, I am in conversation with a naked scientist uh, who can't complain, but he can bring you lots of answers to your curious questions. So why don't you call in right now in Joburg on 011-883-0702. And in Cape Town, we're sending Mark to take your calls for the naked scientist on 021-446-0567. Uh, Chris, you know, something that I think all of us have been looking forward to for 50, 60 years is amazing developments in genetic research that might one day tell us you know what do this little thing to your body and away goes your propensity for rare debilitating diseases i believe there's some interesting research on that front there's a paper which has come out in the journal nature this week it's by um, researchers at the oregon health science university in oregon in america the lead author on this paper is masahito tachibana and what they, t they have shown is feasible is the correction of a class of disorders called mitochondrial enzyme defects or mitochondrial diseases, which affect about one child in every 200. Mm. And they're caused by defects in the genetic material, which is inside structures called mitochondria, which are in almost all of our cells and which are responsible for making energy for our cells. And what's special about mitochondria is that way back in evolutionary history, our cells teamed up with bacterial cells and the two got together and mitochondria are the modern day counterpart of those early bacteria. So they have their own little piece of DNA closely resembling bacterial DNA. And this is separate from the genomic DNA that tells the body how to make us what we look like. Mm. The problem is if the mitochondrial DNA has mistakes in it, then the enzymic machinery inside the mitochondria, which creates the energy our cells are dependent upon, 
can't be made very efficiently and this puts the cells under stress and various tissues can be affected and pretty much every cell in your body is going to be affected. Mm. Now one of the interesting things about mitochondrial DNA and mitochondria in general is that we inherit our mitochondria from our mothers because the mitochondria are present in the egg that gets fertilized by the, the father's sperm. And this means that if we take away the mitochondria from the egg which are diseased and replace them with healthy mitochondria, then the problem should be solvable. Mm. And that's what this group have proven this week is possible. What they've done is to take human donated eggs, they take out the genetic material that is your genomic DNA from the egg, they then take a second egg from a healthy donor and they take out the nucleus, the genetic material from that one, and dispose of it, and they put into this egg, which is replete with its own healthy mitochondria, a new, or the, the nucleus from the first egg, and then they're fertilizing those resulting eggs with male sperm, and the result is embryos. And they appear to be viable in at least half of cases, and they go on to divide in half of those cases, and although they haven't got these to develop on further as a human babies because that would be regarded as unethical and unsafe at this stage they have done the equivalent experiment in some monkeys which are obviously quite closely related to us in terms of their development and they have watched a group of four monkeys for three years which have been developed by this process and the monkeys have been intensively studied in terms of their biochemistry and physiology and they remain thoroughly healthy as far as the scientists can tell and this suggests that this technique could be used to remedy mitochondrial enzyme defect type disorders which are extremely unpleasant for those people who suffer from them. Leslie in Pretoria East. Hello, Leslie. Yeah, hi, Eusebius. Chris, I've got a question for you. No matter the colour of bar of soap, the, the bubbles or the lather that comes off the bar of soap is always white and not the same colour as the bar of soap. Hi, Leslie. Well, the reason that bubbles are the colour they are, they're a very thin film. Isaac Newton actually famously measured the thickness of the film in a bubble, and it's literally fractions of a millimetre thick. And this means that the film is, is just water molecules stabilised with the detergent molecules that make the soap. Because water is a very sticky molecule, it has surface tension, which is the tendency of water molecules to cling together. If you add detergent molecules, then these get in the way of those watery interactions and make the surface tension less, so you can stretch the water out into a thin film, like a bubble. But there's okay. not space in there to get the dye molecules, which are big, chunky, heavy molecules that give things colour. So, as a result, they tend to stay in the bath or they fall to one part of the bubble, and instead what you see are these beautiful rainbow-like effects, which are a bit similar to when you look at a, a drop of oil put on the surface of some water. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's happening because when the oil forms layers on the water, or in your bubble, when the water forming the bubble uh, flows, you get different thicknesses of the bubble film in different places. And if there are different thicknesses, when light goes into the bubble film, the light waves bounce off of different thicknesses of the bubble film, 
So some light waves will have travelled different distances to others, and this means that the light waves then, what's called, interfere with each other. So in some places they add together to, to make a brighter patch of light, and in other places they cancel out because they're out of phase, and for some colours that distance will be greater than others, and as a result you see that beautiful rainbow effect. But that is a, a trick of light rather than the colour of the stuff that was in the bubble bath to start with. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good stuff there. Thanks for that question, Leslie. If you've just tuned in, I am, of course, talking to the Naked Scientist, and we're taking your questions on 011 in Johannesburg. And in Cape Town, you can give us a shout on 021 You're also more than welcome to SMS your question on 31702 or 31567, or perhaps tweet it at Eusebius or on my Facebook wall. I'll happily take questions from there as well for Chris, the very clever Naked Scientist, um, who doesn't have anything to complain about this morning. Hello, Julie. Hi, I just wanted to ask the naked scientist why it's um, easier to open your gate with your remote control when you hold it against your head. So if you're struggling <laughs> to open your gate, then you put, I uh, learned this from my 12-year-old. I was about to ask how you head. know that. <laughs> yeah, my 12-year-old said, hold it against your head and it works. It works every time. <laughs> Um, we've had this one before, Julie. We've looked into this and we can't find any real reason why that should be the case apart from when you put the remote control against your head, apart from giving your 12-year-old the chance to laugh at you, which he may well actually be doing. No, um, you're work. raising the height above the ground and so um, you're potentially improving the line of sight between the remote control and the receiver because the remote control is sending a in some cases, and usually it's a radio signal, to the receiving device, and the receiving device is going to, to need the shortest line of sight to the controller to guarantee it's going to work. Now, if you do what most people do when they get their radio control uh, gate clicker out of their glove compartment in their car, they have it l largely in their lap, in the same place you'd hold the book. And this means when they press the button, the signal has got to go through the dashboard, through the metal of the car, and then carry on in its line of sight to the receiver. Whereas if you hold it up roughly where your head is, your head's higher than your hands, and therefore you're likely to have a shorter, clearer path to the receiver, and that's what makes it work rather than it being anything to do with being in contact with a part of your body, as far as we know. Okay, good stuff. Thanks for that, Julie. Craig, what's your question? Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, I've recently got a lot fitter, and uh, something that I've noticed uh, while I've been feeling fitter is that my alcohol tolerance level has dropped considerably. Stop exercising, and Craig. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to know, can you explain why it does this? And also, will the, if I'm getting pissed quicker, will, I, will my body then break down the alcohol and sober up quicker? <laughs> right, okay, hello, Craig. Um, obviously, uh, when you say fitter, you're not lifting up your right arm to your mouth. <laughs> uh, that muscle definitely needs work. Um... Alcohol is interesting. Um, what it does is it inhibits, because of the breakdown process, it inhibits the process that actually liberates um, glucose from the liver, the process of gluconeogenesis. The liver is a very important organ because it sustains your blood sugar levels by turning other stuff into sugar when you need to. And alcohol, because of the breakdown process, borrows the same metabolic components which are needed to do that to break down the alcohol so you prevent yourself undergoing gluconeogenesis so it may be that in the course of becoming very fit you're actually uh, not drinking as much as you would have done previously therefore you are 
um, optimizing your body for gluconeogenesis and you are potentially also losing your tolerance because the enzymes that break down alcohol mm. also are inducible and what that means is that the more alcohol you have to make them deal with the more of those enzymes there will be and so it may be that if you are training hard you are drinking less hard just because you're you're tired and you go to bed rather than going down the pub and as a result you lose the levels of enzyme you may have had previously down to a lower level and this means that when you drink you can't process as much alcohol as quickly so you tend to notice the effect more mm. it may also be that you've lost some weight uh, in the course of your training in terms of fat and alcohol distributes into all the tissues in the body but will also distribute into fat tissue and if you have lost mass in that way you made yourself leaner then the actual volume of distribution the alcohol can go into may be lower and so the apparent blood concentration will be higher and therefore the gradient pushing the alcohol into your brain or for your ankle to migrate into the brain is going to be stronger or higher and so more alcohol will be delivered more quickly into the nervous system which will result in uh, you, you feeling the effect more quickly of the same amount of alcohol as you did previously. I suspect it's a combination of all of those factors. Good stuff. Quick breather if you've just tuned in. I'm speaking to the Naked Scientists and we're taking your questions on 011-883-0702 in Johannesburg. And if you've got a question for Chris in Cape Town, give me a shout on 021-446-0567. More of your wonderful questions right after this. 13 minutes before 10, we are with the Naked Scientist taking your questions in Cape Town 021-446-0567 and in Joburg on 011-883-0702. You see Bess McKaiser standing in for Edith Tlabi. She'll be back on Monday. Let's go to Soshanguva. Hello, Tebo. Uh, hello, Eusebius. Uh, I'd like to ask Chris, I've often wondered the names of uh, the continents. Is it by accident or is it by design that the name ends with the same letter lovely question and i wish i could say i knew the answer um i used it to know and learn what the continents were when i was at school i didn't know why that bizarre thing had happened but you're absolutely right africa aa antarctica aa europe ee and so on works like a charm doesn't it join plumstead hello hello joy i'd love to know from the naked scientist why do old people who've got white, white hair got black eyebrows? <laughs> Hello, Joy. The reason that we lose the colour of hair and it reverts to white is because the hair follicles that make the hair also contain melanocytes and these are the cells that add melanin, the dark pigment, both to skin but also to hair and for some reason, and not uniformly across the head, these melanocytes clap out after a while and stop oh. adding melanin to the hair, so hair reverts to its natural colour, which is a white colour, because it's made of keratin, and the natural colour of keratin is white. Okay. Now, for other hairs, like eyelashes and eyebrows, they will slowly follow the same course, but it's possible that these hairs grow more slowly, and they're under less pressure than the head hairs, which grow faster, and for longer, and therefore the melanocytes don't expire quite so quickly. That would be my speculation, but if anyone knows a more accurate answer, please do tell me. You can, you can also tweet me, it's at Naked Scientist, if you'd like to do that. 
Well, there you have it, a chance to actually teach the Naked Scientist something. I'm sure someone will call in and have a go with that, Chris. Here's a question for you from Twitter. I'm not sure if I agree with this. I just popped something in my mouth to actually test what this person is saying. Uh, Derek asks you, uh, why is it that the food tastes different in the mouth when you change the sides of chewing from left to right? I've not tried that. I've just tried it with a piece of roll, and I'm not sure it's true. I don't know, but I'm primed perhaps to find (laughs) it not working. The, the intriguing thing, though, is that what we call taste is not just down to your tongue. Many people think that the one smell or the, the one sense that you could sacrifice if you had to give something up would be smell. But actually, smell is, is one of the most important senses for our whole experience of taste. And you can demonstrate this on yourself. If you take a highly flavoured sweet or a piece of chewing gum and hold your nose and chew it, you will notice that the flavour largely goes away. And this is because when you're chewing something, the warmth from your mouth and the movements of your tongue moving food around in your mouth volatilizes or boils off certain molecules from the food and they go up the back of your throat and into your nose and the nose then picks up those odors, Mm. interprets them and then tells your brain this is what this food tastes like doesn't really taste like that it smells like that and we did a whole program on this on the naked scientists about two or three weeks ago Mm. and we invited a a guy called barry smith who is a scientist from london who works on this very subject to come and do some demonstrations with us and one of the really interesting things and if people want to actually tune in there's a there's a podcast if you go to nakedscientists.com and have a look at the show called tricks of the mind you can download it completely free um you can listen to what barry's saying because he's saying that aeroplane food has in recent years if you ask people apparently improved in quality and taste and texture enormously and if you then say well what have they done to aircraft food to improve it he says that one of the key things they've done is to in business class give people noise reducing headphones because if you take away background noise people notice flavors more and two they've made the food spicier and spicier food triggers the trigeminal nerve in your face which is the the general sensation and hotness sensor in your face and mouth and if you make food spicier it seems to intensify your perception of the other flavors so the food hasn't really changed it's just a bit spicier and this seems to make it taste more pleasant the other thing is that uh, sound can also make a very profound difference Um, there was a researcher who recently won an Ig Nobel Prize (laughs) and what he did was to take bags of crisps and take the same crisps that had been left out and, and allowed to go stale the potato chips and he gave them to people and said eat these chips and the nice fresh ones of course crunch 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 in the mouth they they all said these taste great and fresh he then gave them the stale chips and said eat those and they tried them and said they're all stale they don't taste very nice so then he put headphones on the people he got them to eat the stale crisps but while they were eating them played the sound of them crunching the fresh chips and the result was they could not tell that they were stale anymore <laughs> that's so <wonderful>. so <laughs> what we are calling taste is all a trick of the mind and it's an integration of many senses all mixed together the way things sound the way they feel in the mouth the temperature of the thing the texture of the thing and its smell well there you have it taste is not taste if taste alteration finds hello Elna. hi uh hi hi chris thank you for taking my call i would like to know why metal has to be removed from one's body before you have a ct scan and if it isn't removed is there a problem or can there be a problem from it hello elder uh, 
Right, okay, there's two aspects of this. If it's a CT scan, which is computed tomography, this is using X-rays. And X-rays are penetrating forms of light, and the way the CT scanner works is it takes lots of pictures in lots of different directions all around the body, and a computer then looks at the relative absorption of all of those beams of X-rays through the different tissues to build a three-dimensional picture of the inside of the body. Now, metal objects are very dense, and just like bone soaks up X-rays, so when you look at an X-ray, the white bits are where the bones are because the X-rays haven't gone through. If you have a metal object on your body, then when the X-rays try to go through, they'll be very strongly attenuated or blocked by the metal object, and there will be a horrible sort of scattering effect on the picture, and it bleaches out huge bits of the picture. looks really un un uh, unpleasant, actually, because you can't see what's in that area. So... A, you'll get poor quality imaging. If it's an MRI scan, which is a magnetic resonance imaging scan, this is uh, probably much more important because a piece of metal in an X-ray machine won't do any harm to you, potentially. But if you've got metal in you in an MRI scanner, if it's a ferromagnetic material, it can start to move around because the strong magnetic field will start to make the metal move. And so with people who've got bits of metal in them somewhere, including maybe flakes of metal in their eye, if they've been a metal worker or something, or in their brain, if they've had a, a blood vessel aneurysm clipped, these bits of metal can start to spin around and they could potentially turn into a liquidizer inside your skull, which would be very unpleasant. So that's why they always ask you, have you got any metal in your body somewhere if you're going to have an MRI, or they ask you to take metal off if you're having a CT scan. Mm. Then a question here, uh, Chris, and I, and I want to add on my own version to it as well. Someone asked you on the SMS line, why does the sound of running water make you want to urinate? And I don't know if my question is the same way, but I've also been wondering, I wanted to ask you, you know, sometimes you can have a, a, an experience just by imagining something. If you see a piece of lemon, you imagine putting it in your mouth and that sour experience at the back of your mouth, you can actually have the sensation without putting it in. Right, okay. Let me think about this. We were talking earlier about how when you taste something, different senses are integrated. Yes. So the sound of the food affects the way you perceive the flavour. The spiciness or temperature of the food does the same. Water, when you hear it running, sounds like when you go to the loo. And I suspect that the brain does a similar sort of thing. It integrates that this is me successfully going to the loo. So the mm. brain then puts itself into the right now I'm in the going to the loo situation. And I think that's probably why one can facilitate the other. Uh, I'm not sure about the lemon question. Can you just run that by me again? Yeah, just sometimes you have the actual sensation of putting a lemon in your mouth without doing so just by actually having the thing. The anticipation can sometimes already kickstart that, 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 that sensation. Oh, yes, I see. Okay. Well, I think this probably comes down to the fact that we have an imagination, and what is happening when we imagine things is that you have populations of nerve cells in your brain that, ex that, that decode certain experiences. So when I'm talking with you, Eusebius, when you're saying things to me, the part of my brain which decodes language, mm -hmm. nerve cells there are working out what you're saying by mapping the words onto patterns of activity that they know correspond to certain words. Now, I can summon up your voice in my head by imagining you saying something. <laughs> now, in the same way, I know what it's like to taste a lemon, mm. and when I eat a lemon, then those nerve cells activate and they produce the same sort of sensation or my ability to imagine that sensation as though I were really eating it. Mm, absolutely. And this is the same when... Uh, I mean, in recent years, scientists have found a population of nerve cells called mirror nerve cells, mirror neurons. 
And these are nerve cells which appear to be able to impress someone else's experience on you. So they're your root of empathy. So if you're watching someone walking down the street and they trip over and hurt themselves and you go, ooh, that's got to hurt, mm. or you're watching a movie and someone gets hit really rather hard and you go, oh, ouch, then you're basically mapping their experience onto these mirror neurons and you know what it feels like to do a sort of similar mm. thing. So it, you put them in your body and use their, the visual experience of what happened to them and your own internal experience to mm. experience for your self in your own mind what's happening to them we're going to leave and it that's there Chris, one of the reasons why we think we're we're such a social species while it completely makes sense now to me about logical basis for empathy absolutely fascinating chris have yourself a wonderful weekend uh, i'll give you the same advice you see this and <laughs> of course you. everyone else is uh, part of the show today